And let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can rejoice in the greatest gift of your Son. Father, we thank you that he is given to us. Father, you are the giver of all things. And Father, we thank you that you saw fit to give us your Son. Lord, may we all here today, as we have sung of that wonderful gift, may we examine our own hearts this morning to see if we have claimed that hope that you have given us by faith. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And this morning I'd like us to consider how Christ is given unto us. How Christ is given unto us. Now, I will be honest, this is a a passage where there are four um, particular titles given to Christ. We know um, Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And we know Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so my desire as I was starting the study this week was, well, we're going to hit four points. We'll talk about all four of those. And I got through the first one, and I'm like, yeah, there's no way we're going to get through all four of them this, this morning. So we're just going to look today at the first one, how we have a Wonderful Counselor in Christ Now, this passage begins by providing hope in the midst of darkness. And, of course, we don't have the time to set up all the context. And and really, if I had all the time, you know, I I wanted, we would read chapter 8 and it would provide the context for us. But essentially, chapter 9 comes in the midst of God pronouncing judgment and discipline upon His people, particularly the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, if you know or remember anything about the history of Israel, the northern kingdom, very quickly after there was a split after Solomon's reign, it very quickly ran into idolatry, ran into rebellion against God, and God disciplined them by having the northern kingdom be conquered by other nations. And Judah, which had Jerusalem, the place of worship for Israel, it continued for a time, but very soon as well, not far after the northern kingdom had fallen, it reverted to those same ways of idolatry, of not trusting in the Lord, but looking to other nations and placing their confidence in other things. And so because of the idolatry, because of the rebellion, because of the desire to not trust in God, God is promising in chapter 8 that there will be an invasion by an Assyrian army that this Assyrian evasion would be his chosen instrument of judgment and discipline. It's interesting the the language that Isaiah uses in chapter 8. He speaks of this coming invasion as a raging and rapid river overflowing its banks, sweeping into Judah and wiping away much that is there as this flood of judgment invades the entire land. 
He describes this invading force driving through the entire nation, killing and displacing in its hab- in, 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 and displacing its inhabitants. Instead of this being a means for them to turn to the Lord, they will harden their hearts and lash out more at God. There will be persistent rebellion that will leave them looking at their surroundings and finding only distress, only darkness, only gloom, only anguish. In fact, we see this in Isaiah 8, 22. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And then we come to chapter 9. Chapter 8 ends on a very low point. But in chapter 9, God gives this promise that brings hope in the midst of darkness. Hope given to the very people who have spurned God's grace and mercy. Notice what he says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, as we understand the backdrop of judgment and and particularly the end of chapter 8 where there is gloom and distress and darkness and anguish, yet Isaiah speaks of a time when these people who walk in darkness will see a great light, that they will have multiplied to them and increased joy. Now, I'll tell you what, if I can't think of a better description of the needs of our world today, it is that we need to refine and, and find joy in our lives. There have been two and a half, three years of a global pandemic. 
There have been stresses on people now that we haven't seen in ages. There is inflation that's coming, economic woes. I mean, we look around us. All you have to do is turn on the news or read the newspaper or pull up a website online, and you can see the very feeling that we see in verse 22. Distress, darkness, gloom of anguish. Perhaps you're here this morning, and Christmas in particular holds a gloom of anguish for you. Maybe you're here and and you find anguish and difficulty because loved ones aren't here anymore. Maybe you're here and perhaps most of your life, Christmas has not been a very hopeful or joyful time. I think we all go through times and periods in life where we all can relate and resonate with living in gloom and anguish. And the reality is, is that even though we've experienced that in the past, if we walk upon this earth for any measure of time, you will experience it again. So how then can God speak of of Or how then can Isaiah speak of God multiplying and increasing joy? And notice the description of the joy that's given in verse 3. It is the joy like the joy you have at the harvest. Now, you know, we may have some, some urban planters out there, some urban gardeners out there who have green thumbs. I do not have a green thumb. I remember when we lived in Mount Lebanon, I was so excited. I dug up this little patch of of, of uh, grass beside our home and planted corn and planted green beans and, and the deer ate them all. I do not have a green thumb. And so for me, when it came time for harvest, it was only gloom and anguish. <laughs> but you have to understand that the society that Isaiah is writing to is an agricultural society. That's how they, they get their living. They have to grow food. And the idea here is when there is a bountiful harvest, there's great joy in that. He also describes it as the joy that, and the gladness that's had when an army defeats another army and they divide the spoil among them. That is the kind of joy that Israel is having. And notice that is a comparison. He's not saying that he's going to give them a harvest or that he's going to give them victory, but rather that even in the midst of this darkness, they can find joy. How? Well, Judah finds joy, and we we find this in verse 4, 5, and 6. They begin with the word for. These are what we call clausal links or causation links. Why does Judah have increased joy? Why do they have joy at the harvest? And the first thing we see is that the yoke of the burden, the staff of the oppressor, the rod of his oppressor is broken. That the Assyrian army that is coming in to bring discipline to Israel will actually be broken. They will not have to face that discipline forever. And he describes it as the day in which The oppressors of Israel were broken as in the day of Midian. This refers to Gideon's victory. And if you remember, Gideon got a victory not because he had military prowess or a much more superior force. In fact, God specifically weakened his force as he went to battle. Why? To show him that victory comes by the hand of the Lord, not by the might of men. 
So that's the first reason. Secondly, not only is the oppressor cast off, but the actual need for battle will be taken away. In verse 5, he speaks of the boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This refers to the complete conquest of the Assyrians, but also the fact that Israel can now put away their weapons of war. Because there is going to be not just a temporary peace, but a lasting peace. And then we come to verse 6. The last reason that Israel is given, that Judah in particular is given, to have increased joy. And that reason is that a child is given unto them. The final reason Judah finds hope is that a son is born. In fact, this becomes the very basis for the previous two reasons. Everything drives in this passage to finding this as the great hope in the midst of darkness. This one, this child that is going to come in, he is going to turn back the governments of the world that fail that he is going to turn back the cause of sin itself, that this child is going to be the one who provides lasting joy on earth. And then we see the the description of this child that's given unto us. And this is where I want us to look this morning. So yes, that was a very long introduction. There are four terms given here that describe the child given unto us. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I think sometimes we come to this passage and we think there are five, and we can blame good old Handel for that in his song. Wonderful Counselor, they're the same thing. Wonderful Counselor. And this is what we're going to look at today. And what we're going to find is that if we look to the counsel that Christ gives, if we heed His counsel, we will find joy. But if we disregard the counsel that Christ brings, then all we are left with is gloom and anguish and darkness. And so the question you're going to be confronted with this morning Particularly as we remember the birth of Christ, we think of that child born to us. That child born to us, Isaiah is pointing us to remind us whose counsel will you live by? What word will influence the way you live your life? And so let's see, first of all, the wonder of our counselor. The wonder of our counselor. The term that's used here for wonderful is a term that is often used in the Old Testament to speak of the magnificent works of God on behalf of His people. In fact, every time we talk about or see the wonders or how God has worked wonderfully, it refers to what God has done and how He has brought that about. And we can think of the wonders of God's works in the Old Testament if we just peruse our, our remind, or remind ourselves of the stories we learned in Sunday school. How 
The plagues of Egypt were sent by God's hand, and they were a wondrous thing to behold, a terrifying thing, but wondrous. How God led Israel through the Red Sea, splitting it so that they could walk through on dry land. How God provided for Israel by bringing water out of a rock and having manna rain down from heaven. How when Israel went into the land, they got victory over Jericho by God's mighty hand and toppling the great walls of Jericho. Even Gideon's victory is a reminder to the wondrous works of God. There is no God like our God. No one works the wonders that He works. But see, here's the catch. We tend to focus on the wonder of God in doing those amazing, miraculous things. But the greatest wonder we find in Scripture of God is that He is merciful to us. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 107, 10-15. He speaks of those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners, in affliction and in irons. Why? Why is mankind in darkness and, and bound with irons? Because they had rebelled against the words of God. And they had spurned, what? The counsel of the Most High. So what did God do? He bowed down their hearts with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. So the psalmist concludes, let them, those who have received this gracious work of God, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His what? Wondrous works to the children of man. The wondrous work there is that God would take rebellious people who have spurned His counsel and turned away from His word, and and when they turn to Him, when they repent of their sin and turn to Him, He frees them and is merciful to them. And that is for the psalmist the greatest wonder of them all. I think of that hymn. There's the wonder of of the sky and the sun. I can't remember all the lyrics that says, but the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is that Jesus loves me. So we have to understand That when we speak of a wonderful counselor, the counsel that our counselor gives is counsel that comes to those upon whom he has had mercy. He has not treated us according to our sins. He has treated us with love. And that is far greater than the Red Sea opening, the frogs plaguing the Egyptians, Gideon's victory, it is more wonderful than anything you have ever experienced apart from the grace of God. That is the greatest nut wonder that Jesus is merciful to us. 
So we see the wonder of our counselor, and then we see the counsel of our counselor. He is wonderful in counsel, wonderful counselor. So when we look at the mercy of God, the, the mercy that brings about the wondrous display of God's works, should we continue, like those that the psalmist spoke of, in disregarding God's word and disregarding his counsel? Is that the conclusion we should make? Should we sin that grace should abound? God forbid, Paul says. So now we're to turn and to look at the counsel that's given to us, we who are recipients of the wondrous mercy of God, that reality should cause us to listen to the counsel of our wonderful counselor. See, there is a reality here today that there are many, many voices speaking into your lives today. You cannot escape the counsel of the world. It's all around you. Even if you throw yourself off of Facebook and shut down your TV and don't read the newspaper, you're going to interact with people who are going to provide counsel to you. We're to always recognize that we are always being taught by someone. The question is, who will we heed? This was true for Isaiah, particularly as the people were facing darkness and gloom and distress. As they faced that, it would be very easy for Isaiah to go along with the crowd that says, well, we keep crying out to God, nothing's changing, nothing's working, so let's do something else. And God specifically points this out to Isaiah in Isaiah 8. He says, look, don't call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now, boy, this verse is so needed in our day and age. You can look to sources left and right of the political spectrum, and all they want to do is fill you with fear. Fear about what one party is going to do. Fear about the totalitarian state that's coming. Over and over again, there can be fomenting conspiracies all around us. And God says, look, don't listen to it. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear. And then here's the remedy to that. The Lord of hosts, that's the one you should fear. You shall honor Him as holy. Let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. The world wants us to fear, fear, fear. And God says, turn to me, fear me, and you will find joy, not fear. Have you ever noticed that the world, as it trumps up and, and foments the fear within us, it never provides a relief to that fear, does it? No matter how much we try to wrestle control of the situation, it never makes us have joy. But when we fear the Lord, there's fullness of joy. Not only are they going to call us to fear, but Isaiah is also going to be influenced to think and to look for hope in the same things that the world looks for. Isaiah 8.19 God says that these people will say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. 
Now, it's, it's interesting here. Well, there's a principle that we'll pull out from this, but I think also directly we have a growing fascination in our culture and society today with the things of the occult. It's becoming more and more popular and normal. I mean, there's a show, Long Island Medium, that people look to as this person connects people supposedly with their dead relatives. Things like horoscopes and occultic activities are becoming more and more popular and accepted. And people will look to those things and look to find counsel from them. And the temptation was the same today as it was thousands of years ago in Isaiah's day. The people were saying, listen to the noise, the chirping and the mutter of these mediums and necromancers. Inquire of them. They obviously have some sort of corner on truth. And see, the reality here that I think is is hinted at, you know, what does a medium or a necromancer look to? They seek to get information from the dead. If you're into pirate folklore, dead men tell no tales. And I think there, but underneath this, we have to recognize that all those who are without Christ They are dead in their trespasses and sins. We may not go to a medium or a necromancer to ask an opinion of someone who is physically dead, but when we let the world's wisdom drive us and point us in a direction away from God's Word, we're seeking wisdom from the dead. So what are we to do? How are we to find hope in the midst of all this darkness? Well, think of what Jesus' disciples, particularly Peter, said. After he had given counsel, look, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood or you are none of mine. Jesus is calling the crowds to complete and total faith and dependence in him alone. And when the disciples hear this, John 6, 66, boy, I tell you, if there's ever been a reference that fits, it's that one. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What was the offense? It was the word. It was the counsel of the wonderful counselor. And so Jesus turns to the 12 and he asks them this question, will you also go away? And what does Peter say? He answered him, Where are we going to go? You have what? Words of life. Words of eternal life. And so when we come to the wonderful counselor that is given to us, that Isaiah prophesies, we come to one who doesn't inquire of the dead, but provides counsel that is full of life. That is the decision placed before us. Who will we follow? The counsel of the dead or the counsel of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who in and of himself is the light of life. So what are we to do? How are we to respond to our counselor? 
What's interesting that in Isaiah 8, God gives specific commands to Isaiah to help him not be drawn away from the counsel of the world, but to stick to the counsel of God. And the first, he is to bind up his counsel. Isaiah 8, 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. God tells Isaiah, as they hear the, ne- the necromanders chirping and, and the mediums muttering, as they hear the world saying, fear, 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 but they're called to fear God alone, Listen, bind up the council. What does this mean, to bind up the council? In one sense, it means to hide it. But it is not to hide it for the sake of not providing it, but to hide it within yourself, to found your life upon it, to bind your soul to it. That your life rises and falls based on what God's counsel is. You're staking everything on Him. You're all in with the testimony and the truth that God has given. Everything about a disciple of Christ, everything about someone who is given the wonderful counselor, they base everything upon that counsel that he brings. Now this is a battle in our minds because the world is going to constantly pull us away and we've got to tie ourselves to the sure and steady anchor of the soul that is Jesus Christ. We have to, as Paul tells the believers in Romans, renew our minds So we bind up the council. Secondly, we wait for the Lord. This is actually the response that Isaiah exemplifies. But we see it in Isaiah 8, 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Waiting produces hope. I will wait for the Lord. Listen, God promises in His Word. He gives counsel in His Word. His counsel will never fail. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to immediately see the results we want to see. But it does mean that His counsel will never fail. So what does that pull from us? Waiting and hope. We wait. Now, how many of you like to wait? I don't see any hands going up. None of us like to wait. We're a very impatient people. But faith produces patience. Waiting for God to act. Because that shows us that our hope is that what God has said, He will do it. He will bring it to pass. Now the world is going to Like Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, there were people who will say, where is the promise of His coming? I mean, are we not waiting for Jesus to come back? We are waiting for Him. Come, Lord Jesus. And we hope, not a pipe dream, but we stand confidently expectant that Christ will come again. But it's been 2,000 years. 
That's a long time. That's a long time for Jesus to not have come back. And so the world says, look, where's the promise of his coming? He's not coming back. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things were continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You realize that the very fact that we are here and God has a purpose for his church on earth right now is an indication that he wants us to wait and hope. Jesus will come again. And it will be demonstrated for the entire world to see. So we wait for the Lord. We bind up His counsel. We wait for His promises to come to fulfillment. And then finally, we keep then seeking His counsel. And this is what's important. Because I feel that sometimes we can say, well, yes, I bound myself to the Word of God. And... And yes, I know he's coming again, but we sort of give lip service to those realities and then we live our lives based upon the counsel of the world. Let me show you the rest of Isaiah 8, 19. God says, When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chip and mutter, should not a people inquire of who? Their God. Should they inquire of the dead? On behalf of the living. And after pointing out that inconsistency, this is what God commands Isaiah. To the teaching and to the testimony. That as we have the world pulling us away, as we have other voices giving us counsel that doesn't accord with the Word of God, our response is to reject it and to run all the more to the Word of God. Because in here we find the words of our wonderful Counselor. So, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, unto us is a Savior who will have the government upon His shoulder, and unto us is one who is called Wonderful Counselor. Are you living that out in your life today? What counsel do you base your life upon? Whose voice do you listen to? By God's grace, may it be the voice of our Savior found in the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. Lord, we thank you that your counsel brings joy, multiply joy, immense joy, joy beyond our greatest understanding. Father, the world around us chips and mutters. It keeps calling us to follow other counsel. Lord, may we reject it. May we inquire of you, for you have the words of life. May we run to Christ and his word, which gives us wonderful counsel. Father, thank you for the gift of Christ, the child that is born to us, so that we cannot walk through life blind, but we have the light of life in the word of Christ. Work in our hearts, Father, by your Spirit's work. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. Well, that great hope is joy that's given to the world. So we're going to close by just singing the first verse of joy to the world. Why do we rejoice? The Lord is come. Let's stand as we sing.
Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the great gift of your Son, the wonderful counsel that he provides. Father, as we go to our homes, as we spend time with family, may we meditate on the greatest gift, your Son. May we seek from this day forward by your grace to live according to his counsel.